0: Father, we do proclaim your amazing love and your grace to us this morning. Spent life of Jesus Christ upon the cross in our behalf. Oh, Father, we sing praises to your name for this great privilege, for your love, for your loving sacrifice, for the house of God, your children, and the bride of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. I will ask you to be seated. All right, I am going to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 once again for the second time, and Paul is still making his doctrinal case as he has from the beginning. He's gone really full circle here. Back in chapters 3 and 4, he talked about justification by faith, and he's come around again to show that those who do not trust in the... Imputation of the righteousness of Christ try to establish their own righteousness and he thinks particularly of the Jews at this time but with regards to application for us for Gentiles in the 20th century this is really the pattern for everyone who rejects Christ and I'll look at it along those lines but our Jewish apostle here is of course bemoaning the loss of his spiritual and national countrymen which is his natural sentiment. And so, um, and so he talks about it in very plain language. So I'm going to read the first four verses again, where Paul writes this: "Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, open to us this morning the deep teachings of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so he writes, for they, and meaning the Jews, Paul is lamenting the fact that his brethren in the Jewish nation, have almost wholesale rejected Christ. Well, it began with they crucified him. (coughs) And seeking to establish their own righteousness, he writes, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. It's really very plain. It's plainly spoken. Now, I asked a question to the Thursday night study group the other evening. I asked, is there a problem with the way in which the churches at large today preach the gospel in our time. And if there is a problem, what is the problem? I had my own observations and my own theories as to what the problem is as I peruse the, the countryside of uh, the mass of preachers that I've listened to over the years. Um, I told you once that there are two signs I would not ever have at the, at the entrance to our church at the top of the road there, coming in. One sign would be, God loves you. The second sign would be, bean supper Friday night, make reservations now. Now, the second one's an easy choice, because if we need to make reservations to eat beans, then surely we are in the apocalypse, (laughs) and we should be on the lawn looking to heaven, hoping that Jesus raptures us or something. So that's the easy one. The first one's not such a simple matter. It's occurred to me that the modern rendering of the world's need of the gospel is to presume that the world just doesn't know that God loves them. And you just have to tell them. That's why you go by, even on the way to church, you see all the signs God loves you. God's always loved you. He'll always love you. You see all these signs. And I wonder today if that's really what the church sees as the deficit in the unsaved today. Well, they just don't know the good news. Well, what's the good news? God loves you. And so it's the job of the church to remind them of this fact, to let them know that God does indeed love them, that he loves everyone. And knowing that, they'll love God in return, and they will therefore be saved. It seems to me that's the sort of politically correct, simplistic gospel that I hear very often in the uh, in the public places, the internet, wherever else you might hear a modern sermon from a modern preacher today. I'm not here to tell you that God doesn't have enough love for everybody. I'm quite sure that he does. But is the gospel of Christ simply a matter of knowing God's love? Let me tell you, the Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness and they didn't submit to the righteousness of God, but I'm quite certain they really believed that God loved them. I'm quite certain. I think that that's the basis upon which they opposed the teachings of Christ and the Baptist. They kept pointing to the Jews saying you need to, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and all these people who were thought of in that society to be of superlative righteousness. It has to exceed that, and that insulted them. It wasn't about love. It was about righteousness for them, you see. So I'm not here to tell you that God doesn't have enough love. He certainly does. But I am here to query the idea that the gospel is simply a matter of knowing God's love. I've heard the gospel preached this way. Perhaps you have. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've probably heard that, right? Um, I think that's true for believers, (laughs) but I don't know if it's true across the board. There's nothing that Tells me in the scriptures that it's true. I've heard Joel Osteen preach on the nature of that wonderful plan. What's the plan? Well, it seems everybody's pretty much got the same plan. I heard him speak about moving up in your career. I've heard him counsel the members to jettison friends who aren't good for their self-esteem. Those who hinder their path to that wonderful material social abundance that he presumes we're all seeking and that our faith makes possible for us. That's what I see when I listen to some of these Preachers, and I'm, I'm singling out the one at this time. I've heard him say that it's not his calling to preach about or to even bring up the matter of sin. See, once you bring up sin, you've got to talk about righteousness. But the Jews, it says, were ignorant about righteousness. That just means they didn't know. They needed to be apprised of it. But what keeps you from knowing things? What keeps you from knowing the truth when you hear it? It's called pride. You know what month it is, right? I was thinking the other day, I said to Karen, maybe we ought to have a humility parade. And then I thought, if you're humble, you don't have a parade. Look how humble we are. It's pride that keeps us from believing the truth. We can't be told we have a deficit. Friends, most people in the Christian churches today are one disagreement away from walking out the door, showing you their back, and never seeing them again. And that's because the church, by and large, for the last 30 years of my life, has preached that what the deficit is in people is that they don't know God loves them, and that he does, and we just need to tell them. I've heard him say that his calling is not to preach about sin. So when the saving gospel is preached... I wonder just what the esteemed reverend believes we're being saved from. Are we being saved from a bad self-image? We're certainly not being saved from uh, bad political decisions and um, bad uh, politicians. We seem to have an abundance of that going on. Are we being saved from relational disappointments? Well, my wife doesn't understand me. Perhaps if I knew God loved me, she would. I mean, I don't know. What... There's all these things. How about material poverty? Is that what we're being saved from? Is that what Christ died on the cross to save us from? Friends, recall that at the day of Pentecost, you'll go back to Acts chapter 2. When the apostles preached to the masses in their own languages, because they were gifted with um, the glossolalia, the, the gift of tongues, Peter said this. He said, and with many other words he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. You're being saved from something, into something. After the people in the streets, at that point, most of them Jews, heard Peter speak about their personal guilt and killing Christ, he said right there, he, he labeled them with it. He convicted them as being the crucifiers of the one who came to save them. And by the Holy Spirit's mercy, they actually believed him. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, the new king, James says, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? It's just like people to think they have to do something, right? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. What does repent mean? It means stop doing. Whatever you're doing, stop it. That's repentance. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice they didn't need a lot of doctrinal teaching about baptism. You were baptized, you were immersed in the name of someone. And that said it all. So it seems to me that if Christ is to save us, then we must be willing to put aside the very thing he saved us from. That's what repentance is all about. That's the meaning of it. Stop doing what you're doing, just stop. The word metanoio means to change one's mind. The word metanoio is the word in Greek translated repent. To change one's mind or purpose or path. So, in other words, stop and believe in Christ and receive his blood payment for your sins. You were immersed in the world, in the ways of the world, and the self or false righteousness of the world, and now you're going to be immersed in Christ. The symbol is the water, and the power is real of the Holy Spirit. So if we leave sin out of the equation, if we do not speak on repentance, then surely there's a grave deficit in the gospel message that we're preaching. It cannot simply be a comforting call to recognize that God loves you. It's my observation, by the way, that most people assume that God loves them. Wouldn't you think, as you look around? Ask someone, does God love you? They might say, Oh, I don't believe in God, so you can't really go anywhere with that. But if they say, oh yeah, I, I know God, and he loves me, of course he does, he loves everyone. Everyone says that all the time. I'm wondering, is it biblical or is it a cliche? Because Paul doesn't seem to care about it with regards to the salvation question. It's righteousness that he cares about here in the passage. It cannot simply be a comforting call to recognize that God loves you. It's my observation that most people assume that he does. And I don't think they need me to tell them that, but... You see, I'm not at all certain that the problem in our society today is that people do not believe that God loves them. For most, if they believe in God at all, they believe that he's an equal opportunity lover. Because God is, of course, (laughs) like any good deity would be. He's an American. So naturally, he would do all things equitably. He would care about your rights. You You know, the Bible isn't the place you go to find out your rights. There's one right that I know of off the top of my head that if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, he gives you the right to become children of God, John 1 something or other. So there's one right. If you believe in him, you have the right to be called children of God. So I'm glad to see all the children of God here this morning. But I think the man on the street believes that if there is a God, he's a God of love. He's a God of, you hear these words, universal, unconditional love. I once asked A Bible study group many years ago, If God Loves Them. I'll never forget, I used to teach on Monday nights at Greg Freitag's. Anyone remember Greg? He was a good friend of mine in those days. Yeah, Ricky remembers. And I was there, and it was all young people, like we used to call college and career age. it was smart kids. You know, the pastors, kids were there, all the kids were there, and I was teaching the Monday night study, and there were some kids that they'd bring in because they were very good, you know, sharing the gospel with their friends, coming to the Bible study. It's fun, you know, this kind of thing. And um, so most of the young people, I asked them, does God love you? And most of them nodded their heads. But of course, I would agree because they were all saved, right? Obviously, you're loved by God if you're saved. That much we can be assured of. So they all said yes. But there was this young one, uh, this one young girl, and I mentioned this on Thursday evening. Um, She didn't answer yes. She said, I said, does God love you? And she said, Of course, of course. Now, yes, could be a right answer, but could, of course, be a right answer? In other words, what else would he do? <laughs> Check me out. I mean, So I had to say to her, no, that's the wrong answer. I want you to tell her, I, I tell you, I never saw her again. I hope she's in the, in the faith. But I think she best represented what most people think, though. So I said to her, no, I'm sorry, of course is the wrong answer. Now, to this day, I can honestly say, with the scripture as my witness, that I do not know if God loves that woman or not. I don't know. But I can honestly say that she loves herself. She sees herself as unquestionably lovable. Of course. I think she thinks her wonderful, confident answer to my question shows how spiritually reflective she is. I think that was the point. It was to sort of one-up the others. They said yes. She said, of course. I also believe that her answer is the answer of most people who ever gave a thought to such things. Now, I'm, going, I'm telling you my observations of the culture today, and I'm a pretty astute observer. I'm always observing. I'm always doing little social experiments that I tell you about, about things I'll say out in public to see how people react. <clears throat> the other day, Karen went, and I were at Home Depot, and I was buying some insulation. It was in a, it was in a, you know, one of those shrink wrap. Pack, but you know, I got to tell you right now, I have a, a, a great problem with packaging. Me and packaging are at war. I hate packaging. All right. Um, but anyways, they were trying to beep the little thing. You know the, what do you call it? The barcode. The barcode. They were trying to beep, and it wouldn't beep because bit of packaging in the way, so they're all tearing, and they're tearing away, and Karen tried to tear it, and, and the two girls at the counter tried to tear it, and I said, would you like me to try to tear it? <laughs> I could tear that thing so quickly and easily, because I'm a man, <laughs> and I said something to that effect, and the lady, I would say mid-40s, who I see often, because I'm in there often, and she went like this, she went... And I went, why are you looking at me that way? We all know that men are stronger than women. She said, no, we don't. And I said to the other lady, see, she knows it, but she can't admit it because she's so programmed by this society that you're not allowed to say the truth about simple, obvious things. So I tore the thing apart. Can I tell you one more packaging story? One more packaging story. You, You know, at the Reformation Fair, we throw hatchets. Because it's a medieval thing, and, and they're called the Manliots. So we throw hatchets. So one year, I mean, Billy sharpens them every year, but one year I said, We're gonna buy some new hatchets, and so they're nice and they're like razors. And it came in this package, and I'm like, I gotta be careful, because if I touch that, it's gonna slice me really good. And they make it so you gotta pull it apart, you know? So you're doing it really hard. It looks like it should open up, but it doesn't. Believe it or not, I opened the thing, no problem. I never came close to the blades. I was free. The packaging cut me so bad, I had to wrap it and throw hatchets that year with a bloody bandaged hand. I'm done with my packaging curse story. But getting back to what most people think, I wonder if I took the question a little further, what would be the answer? Suppose I asked, does God owe you his love? Or does God owe you the same love that he showed to Paul? Does he owe you? Remember, why do you kick against the goads, Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus? Why are you persecuting me? He never persecuted Christ. He persecuted the people of Christ, and Christ took it personally. He should have showed up and killed the apostle on the spot. But he loved him too much. He definitely loved Paul. Does he owe you the love that he owed Paul? That he showed Paul. Does he owe you the love that he showed Moses? You know, it's an interesting story. You go back into... um, I forget if it's Exodus or Numbers, you can tell me later. But um, Moses has a brother, Aaron, and a sister, Miriam. And they told on him to God. Because he married a black woman. He married an Ethiopian, a Cushite in that day, right? And they didn't like that. They were racists. (laughs) They didn't like this. So they went to God and told on him. And God said to them, how dare you? You know my relationship with Moses. You know I speak to him face to face. Don't you dare come and tell on him. And he turned her into a leper for seven days. Does he owe you the love he owes Moses? He didn't owe it to them. How about the love he showed David? Does he owe you that? I'm here to tell you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the same love that Moses and David and Abraham and all of them had in Paul. You have it, but he doesn't owe it, does he? So you got to know that Thursday night group's a really smart group. They're smarter than most of the rest of you here, but um, I knew no one would answer, yes, God owes me his love, because they're too smart for that. And if I asked, or if they said, yes, he owes me his love, I'd say, why does he owe it to you? And the answer would be, because he showed his love to others, therefore he owes it to me. Wouldn't that be what our American God would say in our American gospel? Um, he showed it to others. Clearly, if he's a just God, he'll spread his love equally among his creatures. Surely, if he is an equitable God, a fair God, an unprejudiced deity, if he loves one, he must love all. What he gives to one, he has to give to all. Now, my evidence for this notion is that I look to the people with whom I've shared the gospel in my life And I found that as soon as the sin question comes into play, as soon as the conversation turns from love to righteousness, as soon as it turns not to what God owes me but to what I owe him, the man on the street is disturbed to say the least and hostile and hateful to say the most. So let me take the rest of the hour to try to fix this broken gospel for us this morning. Let me turn your thoughts to the text of Scripture we have before us. The gospel of God, it seems, requires a basic level of knowledge. How did he say it? For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They lacked the knowledge of what true righteousness was. And it seems they lacked a great deal of knowledge about themselves and the level of righteousness that they oh, that they show, rather the gospel of god it seems requires a basic level of knowledge then doesn't it you have to have some knowledge and that knowledge it doesn't say it's about love the knowledge is about righteousness it was the ignorance of jews of the jews regarding god's righteousness that kept them outside the family of christ so there's a knowledge a message There is an understanding that goes with the saving gospel. Understanding has to come first, because if you don't have the knowledge or the understanding, you are insulated from the definition of the righteousness of God. You can't know it without that piece of knowledge. You have to have that to be saved. So there's a knowledge, there's a message, there's an understanding that goes with the saving gospel. It's not just about love after all. It seems it's about righteousness. So I probed a little further on Thursday Thursday evening. I asked, does God owe you anything? Now, I'll tell you, before you think in your minds what the answer is, it it is a trick question. But I couldn't trick anyone on Thursday night because, once again, the smartest people in the church go to the Thursday night (laughs) study, so you can't trick them. You can try, but it's very difficult. And so we're, we're programmed to say, oh, no, God doesn't owe me anything. I don't know an evangelical on earth who hasn't learned to say that. God doesn't owe me anything. That's our humility. Whether we believe that or not, we know that we have to say it. But the Thursday night group, much smarter than that, they know that God does indeed owe every one of us something, doesn't he? He owes us judgment. Why? Because he's just. And you've you've been unjust and unfaithful and offensive. He owes us judgment. And they knew that. He owes us condemnation. He owes us perdition, which is what? An eternity in hell. He owes us that. He may or may not love you. That remains to be seen. But he does not owe it to you to love you. He owes only just recompense for sins we commit that offend him. That's what he owes us. The man on the street doesn't know that. The Jews were offended by it. The man on the street you share the gospel with, your friends, your relatives... Your religious friends and relatives, they're offended by that. That's my observation. And so I say, I don't know if he loves you or not. He, he does not owe it to you to love you. That much I can say. And he does owe us an eternity in a fiery hell. Bible's very clear. Book of Romans, very clear on that. But then the evangelicals will cry out to me, but pastor, don't you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but ever have everlasting life. And I'll say to you, yes, I do know that. I do know God loves the world. I do know that. Make no mistake. I know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But I'll ask again, what about all the rest then? What about those who do not believe and still think they're owed his love? What about them? Isn't that what this passage is about? So I'll ask, what about the people John speaks of in John three eighteen? Well, I've never. Why would you go past John three sixteen? John three eighteen says, "He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is." That's what it says. How about John three nineteen? John three nineteen says, "And this is the condemnation that light is coming into the world, and men love darkness." Now, when it says light, what does it mean? John, it's it's true with John. Light is a symbol of something. Whether you're reading the Gospel of John, or 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, even of Revelation, when when John says light, he means knowledge. You go through and you see if I'm not right about that. They rejected the light. They rejected the knowledge of God because their deeds were evil and they liked their deeds. How about John 3.20? Everyone practicing evil hates the light. They hate the knowledge of righteousness. That's why they keep doing the evil. And they don't come to the light. Why? Because they're... The deeds would be exposed. Light shows the moral integrity of the things that you do. And that light is the knowledge of the gospel. That's why when you give it to them, they get mad at you. You've exposed them. And while we're at it, let's look at a couple other verses. Hosea 9, 1, to the Jews says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I'll drive them from my house. I will love them no more. So much for unconditional love, right? God's long-suffering... But his love isn't unconditional. At least Hosea didn't think so. How about Psalm 11.5 where we read, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God hates violence and violent people in his very soul. So, so much for universal love. And let's not forget Romans 9.13 where God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. I have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So much for unprejudiced love. God can discriminate. He's not an American after all. Now I know that John 3.16 gloriously proclaims that God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. I also know that God so loved the world in other times. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do we agree? That is a scripture verse that's become a cliché sadly because god so loved the world in noah's time too and he saved it then too and you saw how he chose to do it he was sorry that he made man on the earth because every thought and intent of his heart was only evil continually so he ended it and he saved the world by saving only eight we're hoping for a, a better ratio this time And so the same God who loved the world in Noah's time saved it by washing away all but eight people, and the cross of Christ does the same thing. It's not for everyone indiscriminately. It's for those who believe. It's for those who have been given the knowledge that someone had to bleed for their sins, that they themselves were guilty of sin, and they are among those whom God owes death and judgment and everlasting punishment. That's the gospel. And it's right there in John 3, 16 through 20. You don't have to go much further. It's for those who know that God owes them death and hell, and it's for those who know what they owe God, their lives. If you don't know that, well, let me tell you, when the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, what's the first and great commandment? They asked, and he said, the first is, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with either your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. I'm pretty sure that's your whole life. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's what we owe God. And when he doesn't get that, we're in sin. That's why he had to die for us. And then he said the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because the image of God is in the neighbor. You can't just hate him. You can't kill him. You can't take his stuff. You can't take his wife. You know the commandments, right? Can't say bad things about him that aren't true. There are commandments. The difference between believers and unbelievers is believers delight in following the commandments. Keep holy the Lord's day. Believers delight in that. If you don't delight in it, you need to repent before God and ask to to delight in it. And so, as our verse tells us this morning, the tragedy of the Jews of Paul's time began with ignorance. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, it says, it proceeds from ignorance to good works. That will always happen because good works are right. What? Self-righteousness the attempt to attain personal righteousness apart from Christ. That is, seeking to establish their own righteousness, the verse said, right? And then finally, it will move to discount the righteousness that God provided in Jesus Christ, and we read, and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. It's a perfect gospel verse. Now, I want to draw a distinction between the words that we used here. The first is seeking to establish. I'm not going to give you the Greek because it's a compound word. It's a big, long thing, and It's forgettable, all right? Seeking to establish. The second is have not submitted. On the one hand, you're seeking to establish your own righteousness. On the other hand, you have not submitted. Isn't it interesting that when you seek your own righteousness, you do something? And when you seek God's righteousness, you do nothing? You surrender. You give up. That's what it is. It's a submission. Stop whipping yourself trying to be righteous, Pharisee. In the second case, there is submission. The word is hupiko, and it means to retire. I like that. I'm in hupiko meant To withdraw, it means to yield. It means to yield. What does yield mean? Give up. It's a complete surrender. I've told you many times, belief, you know, as words change in their meaning over times, perhaps it's time for belief to be turned to surrender because that's really what we have to do. It means to give up, to give in, to cease to strive after a thing, to cease in the struggle to establish your own righteousness. It's a recognition of personal helplessness, and it comes with a readiness to reach up and take hold of the only saving hand available, the hand of the Savior. That's what Peter told them they had to do. Just repent. Just stop what you're doing. Stop all this clamoring. Stop all this pretense of righteousness. Receive this one bit of knowledge and give in to Christ. The tragedy of the Jews that the apostles bemoaning here is that they saw no need in themselves of a savior. Certainly not a sacrifice for sins. When Paul preached this, they, their, their mindset was, don't go dying on the cross for my, for my sake. Don't die on the cross for my account. Do you think God doesn't take it that way? They didn't rightly perceive their own spiritual state, and neither does anyone apart from the gospel of Christ. Now, there's a very graphic picture of this, in the teaching of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to turn to it. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke 18. Go to Luke 18, down around verse 9. Anybody love the parables? The parables are Jesus' illustrations. We come up with other ones, Um, and hopefully... They comport with the ones he gave us. But it says, "...and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves." You see that? Underline that in your Bible. He spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves. Every Jew should have had a pen out going like this, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Whew. He definitely wasn't an evangelical because they know how to lie in their prayers better than this guy did. I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This IRS agent over here is in no way to be compared with me. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. I tithe tithe mint and anise and cumin, remember? And the tax collector stood afar off. And he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He gave up. He didn't even dare ask. He knew what he was. (coughs) Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the parable for this verse. There has to come into the mind of the believer, the realization that God demands something of us that we cannot offer of ourselves. He asks, remember I told you last week, he asks the impossible all the time. God commands the impossible. Remember the Lloyd-Jones illustration? He asked the man with the withered hand to stretch it forth. He asked the dead man in the cave to come forth. He does things. He told the the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. Get out of here. He couldn't do it, but he did it. Because when God gives a command, he also gives you the provision to fulfill the command. God provided what you lacked. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that provision. That's what you lacked. You and me and the Jews who saw themselves as the keepers of the law, have no access to the righteousness that's required of us. We and they have no power to produce it, but Christ does, friends, and that's the good news. We don't have anything that he wants, but he gave us something that he'll accept. That's the good news. Even though you have nothing, I'm going to save you by my life. I should take yours, but I'm giving you mine because it's better. And now yours will be better. We saw last week from the preceding verses that the Jews of Paul's time had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so today's verse takes it further. They being ignorant. What is ignorant? It's uninformed. It's misinformed. It's blinded to. Right? Isn't that, in, isn't that what ignorance is? They saw no need for the blessed substitute on the cross. I'm going to turn you to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I don't know where it is. It's right after 1 Corinthians, I'm pretty certain. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel... See, there it is. The gospel is the light. The gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Friends, there's a God of this world who's blinding you. And I'm not him. So when I tell you what Christ said... That's the light shining. You can take it or you can reject it. There's no invitation, friends. It's a command. You know, Paul said that the the Jews are guilty because the law and the prophets witnessed to them of the need for the Messiah, and they still missed it. They were therefore guilty, right? Friends, if the prophets thought that they had the answer, they wouldn't have pointed to Christ. They all pointed to... To Christ. The gospel of Christ was first preached by the angel that came to Joseph in a dream. The angel, remember this? Joseph, husband of Mary, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, even though she's pregnant and you haven't known her yet, right? For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Deliverer. That's what Jesus means, right? For he will what? Save. His people from hard times. Everyone should be on their feet, screaming at me. Save their people from material lack, low self-esteem. Save his people from too much criticism, PTSD. No, save them from their sins. The gospel's about righteousness. And we hate the whole subject. His coming was always about saving us from our sins, right from the beginning when the angel preached it. But so long as we see ourselves as having no need for saving, we too are content to profess our own righteousness. And like the Jews of old, it will never be enough. What did Billy read this morning from uh, Ecclesiastes? He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Or he who loves money with with abundance or something along those lines, right? In order for the promises of the gospel, the promise of eternal life with God to take hold in our hearts, our minds must first be filled with the knowledge of God and his righteousness. That's the essential piece of knowledge. You have to have it or you're not saved. And I know you're not because you didn't have the opportunity to be. You can't still be ignorant of the righteousness of Christ and be saved. You can't be ignorant of your need for righteousness and be saved. That's why the Jews were not saved because they were ignorant of that. We must know, we must see our need. And that's to see our present state. We have to see us as we are. That's the human condition. The same condition that Paul so emphatically depicted in chapter 3 of this epistle, where we read, there is none righteous. You know, it would be one of those verses that's not clear, and we'd have to go to other verses to make sure that that's what this verse meant. If all it said was there's none righteous, but that's not what where Paul left it. He said, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. In fact, I didn't write it all in the notes, but I'll turn to... Romans 3, where he goes on, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I don't think we need to cross-reference. Certainly not because this is a conglomeration of many uh, scriptures from the Psalms. He's putting a bunch of them together here. And they were familiar to the Jews. Ignorance is the first step to destruction, and knowledge is the first step to salvation. But I think that we can see that it's not just knowledge. It is not just a feeling or an inclination about our need for Christ. There is a certain precision to the knowledge that we must have. It's not just simple. The gospel is simple, but it's not simplistic. We may remember the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where he made the distinction between what men say and believe and what's actually required of them. And so he said, and this to the Jews, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the most righteous people in your society, the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Friend, let me tell you something. You would love to have a Pharisee living next door to you. He would be a great neighbor. Very righteous, very clean, orderly. Um, he'd lend you his stuff because he has to. He'd help you out in a hard time because he has to, right? He would do all those things. You could trust him to watch your house when you're away. You could lend him your chainsaw. He'd give it back all greased up, right? Pharisee, great person to have next door, but your righteousness has to exceed that. And so Jesus went on. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, there's a precision to the knowledge. Whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. There's a precision, there's a refinement of the knowledge of sin that is lacking in the unrighteous. He goes on, you've heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery. He goes on to say, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman whose divorce commits adultery. People, there were plenty of people in that society guilty of all these things, particularly the thought crime part of it. It was very convicting. Anyone who is honest when they hear this knows they don't have the righteousness of God. That's why he preached it. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. This is the most convicting of all to me. You shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. And that doesn't mean don't say naughty words. He's going to tell you what it means. Do not swear at all. You shouldn't say naughty words, but that's not what this passage is about. Don't swear by heaven, it is God's throne. Don't swear by the earth, it is his footstool. Not by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Most of us cannot say that's true of us. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You don't promise, you don't swear. I hear some people, I swear to God all the time, I swear to God. You shouldn't need that. You should just say yes, and you should know that person. I know which ones of my friends, particularly my Christian friends, when they say I'll do something, I I can walk away. I know it'll be done. Their yes is yes. Their no is no. I can say to them, have you done this thing that you're accused of? And if they say no, I know it's true. I've had to test that a time or two. Once you lie, you break that down. I taught my kids that. I said there's going to come a time if you lie to me, there's going to come a time when everyone's saying you did something and you're telling me you didn't, I'm going to stand with you unless I think and have good reason to believe you're a liar, and that got tested one time. And I stood with him. I stood with my son who was accused of something. And I'm talking to about the police, okay? I'm not talking --Oh, the kid said, "Oh, Daniel, does this to me." And I had to stand with him, and I stood up for him, and my defense was powerful, and we won the day. But I believed him because he hadn't lied to me. I remember James said to one of the neighbors, he said, you know, I lied to my dad once. He goes, Daniel never lied at all. (laughs) Coming to find out there was a couple of things over the years. So you see, to be informed on a matter of righteousness, there's a certain precision of knowledge that's required, Right? And that precision, that refinement, that understanding will lead us to see that apart from the sacrifice of a perfect Savior on our behalf, we would not possibly measure up to the righteousness that God demands. Friends, in order for you to measure up to the righteousness of Christ, you would have to be Christ. The first Adam could not be Christ, so God sent the second Adam. No fault insurance. I don't know if I used that properly, but... um, As soon as it's understood, every heart will be aware of his own personal guilt in offending God. If not in his actions, then in his thoughts. If not in his thoughts, then in his words. We offend God all day long. We can't possibly claim righteousness apart from Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And the whole of the first part of Romans is to tell us, but don't worry. The good news is he did impute it to you if you have faith in him. Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration of an athlete training for a particular contest. The man has trained strenuously for weeks, even for months, even for years, and the great day comes when the race will take place, and the man walks confidently to the starting block. He lines up to compete, only to find that he didn't read the syllabus directions correctly. He labored and trained for an event that was canceled. That's the illustration of the man seeking his own righteousness. I can do this, I can do this. And you find out, it's not even a race. I'm disqualified before I get to the starting block. So he was disqualified to compete. He had not trained for the right event. He lacked the precise knowledge required before he began to train. Now, when I read that, I thought, I'm gonna come up with an illustration too. You know, I love illustrations. And I thought, that's like standing in the wrong line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? There's no mercy, you're in the wrong line, but I've been here an hour and a half. Go back to the beginning and try to get in the right line this time. And don't hear, let me hear any whining about it. No mercy for you. Anyone ever have that happen? You know, you make appointments now to go. I don't know if you know that. I came up with a, an illustration of my own. It's quite like the social climber who strove all his life to climb the ladder of success, right? Upwardly mobile. Listen to all the Dale Carnegie tapes of old. You don't know who he is. Forget about it. He was convinced that at the top, all the benefits and privileges he sought would be his. He would be at the top. He would have gotten there himself. He would have climbed rung after rung. He would call the shots at that time. He would be the winner. And he came to the top only to realize that all the while he climbed with confidence in his own abilities to reach the top and gain the prize that he had leaned his ladder against the wrong wall after all. All he saw was a vast wasteland of other climbers who had also wasted their lives, and all the things he promised himself did not materialize. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you know that Christ is called the ladder in Scripture? Did you know that? I'll read it to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Climb the right ladder, friends. Jesus Christ is the only true measure of righteousness. His is the only ladder that ascends the wall of life and leads to eternity. If you think you possess righteousness and you don't possess Christ, you will be eternally disappointed. If you believe that in and of yourselves your works will please God, you will likewise be disappointed. And that's the tragedy of the Jews that Paul laments so pitiably in these verses. All the prophets pointed to Christ. If they thought they could be saved by their own righteousness, they would have pointed to themselves or to someone else. But they didn't. They pointed to Christ. There will be a babe in a manger. He'll be crucified between two thieves. Right? Right. Goes on and on and on with descriptions of the Christ that was to come. John the Baptist finally said it in this way. I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. In other words, don't look to me to save you. His sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he'll thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Friends, when the chaff is burning in the furnace, do you suppose people will still be debating over who he truly loved? I don't think that will be the conversation. Rather, those who have been gathered like sheaves of wheat into the barn will be rejoicing that he himself paid for their sins and imputed his righteousness upon them. You know, Lloyd-Jones loves to teach doctrine through hymns and song verses. A lot of times I don't know the hymns, and I don't know the one I'm going to close with here. If I knew the the tune, I would sing it to you. But I don't. But it's from Augustus Toplady. Anybody? Tom, I know, knows. But Toplady was a um, great preacher, theologian, hymn writer from the uh, Wesleyan era, 1740s, 50s. Great preacher. He's quoted. I see him quoted in... In all of the great commentaries I read, The Man Lived to 37. Augustus Toplady. <laughs> I wish I knew the tune. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow, thou must save, and thou alone. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, lest I die. All for sin could not atone. Father, in Jesus' name. Father, give us the Holy Spirit and a great knowledge, O Lord, of the righteousness of Christ that we are so depleted of. But let us also have the joy of the good news, Father, that he did die for those who believe. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.